By the way, Megan, you did, I just want, I don't say this very often, but somebody needs to give some kudos to the sound video people. Megan, the way you did the slides today, perfect. I have never seen them done literally perfect. There it is. When you think about the rock, I want you to think of that picture. And as we, th we think about what it means to build your life on the rock, we are reminded of Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The words of Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and we are studying the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we, we took a little detour as we talked about fall-in gathering. Today, we're coming right back to building your house on the rock. We've already studied the upside-down kingdom of Jesus in the Beatitudes, and then his encouragement to kingdom citizens as he talks about being salt and light. Today, we turn to a key element of Jesus' message in the Sermon on the Mount, and really a key vital element to Jesus' message overall. Actually, what Jesus is going to say next in the Sermon on the Mount, what we're going to talk about today, is an incredible turning point in history. Jesus is going to announce something new. Something that changes everything. John Wesley, the famous 18th century preacher and evangelist, said of the subject we're going to talk about today, perhaps there are few subjects within the whole compass of religion so little understood as this. Would you pray with me? God, going to have to be you. It cannot be me. What we're talking about today is challenging, difficult. We need you to speak through your word, Lord God. Please, please speak. Amen. The subject today is one that I have struggled to understand my entire life. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom. That's it. 
That's as far as we're going to get the Sermon on the Mount today. And if we even get close to starting you and to starting me to understand those words of Jesus right there, it will be a miracle of the Lord God. How does Jesus fit with the Old Testament? More specifically, how does the Old Testament law of Moses apply to followers of Jesus today? <laughs> so here I am standing on your level. I've always kind of disliked this stage thing for lots of reasons. First of all, the idea of a stage um, implies that there's a performance going on. I don't like that. I know the worship team doesn't like that either. I don't like the idea of I'm up there and you're the audience. That kind of has always just fundamentally bothered me about the way we've done church. I've said this to you before. I've been here for 17 years. Some of you that have um, managed to survive that long of my preaching would know that at times I've said, I wish that we could have a sanctuary where everybody was in a circle. And actually, one of my favorite things in youth ministry and in adult ministry is just putting our chairs in a circle and talking together about Jesus. Right? I just want to be in the circle with you. I don't want to be this special thing that's up there talking. Right? I need to point you to Jesus, not have you point to me. So here we are, talking about how does Jesus fit with the Old Testament. The reason I'm down here today, there's a couple of reasons. How do you make one of the reasons is because this is one of the most controversial topics in the church today. And what I mean by that is, lots of Christians think different things about this. So I'm down here reasoning with you, trying to help you understand where I have landed up to this point in my life on this question. But I want to be careful, because of the second reason that I'm down here today. I think this is the question, fundamentally, that caused my home church to leave the Church of God. Because the pastor of that church decided to speak authoritatively about something he should not have. You see, unfortunately, many people have said about this topic that they know that their way is right and everybody else is wrong. So here I am on the floor with you trying to understand the words of Jesus together. Okay? As a young Christian, this is the question that always perplexed me. The first time I read the Bible all the way through, I actually started in 7th grade. Uh, so, 7th graders, if you think you can't read the Bible yet, well, you can. Okay? It's doable. I started with the King James Version. That was a mistake. <laughs> okay? I actually got all the way to um, Joshua before somebody said to me, you know, there's other versions. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> so I made it all the way through the first five books of the Bible in the old King James version. It was pretty rough. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These were largely a mystery to me 
even after I read all the way through them. But what little I did understand of those first five books of the Bible, I did understand that what I was reading was a list of rules. Now, it wasn't just a list of rules. There's a story, right? You got Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. You got Moses and the Israelites in slavery and let my people go and all that good stuff. And then right about when things are really going good, you hit Exodus chapter 20. And then you're like, what happened to my story? Because it turns into a list of rules like you've never seen before. And as a little seventh grader, my brain could not grasp much of what I was reading. But I understood enough. I understood enough that these were rules that God Almighty had given to His special people and that God Almighty expected His special people to live by them. It didn't take me very long, even, in, even as a seventh grader, to ask one of my first questions about the Bible. Do I have to follow those rules too? That's a good question. So, um, I decided I need to find the answer to that question as a seventh grader. And so I started asking people. Doesn't that seem right? I went in my church and I started asking my Sunday school teachers and I asked you know, my pastor and I asked all kinds of different people. And you know what I discovered? I discovered what John Wesley said. Perhaps there are few subjects within the whole compass of religion so little understood as this. That's what I discovered as a seventh grader. You see, the key question is this. Do followers of Jesus still have to follow the rules of the Old Testament? By the way, that's not just a key question for us today. This has been a key question from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. It is no surprise that this is precisely the question that Jesus addresses at the beginning of his ministry on the shores of the Sea of Galilee in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5.17 Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What does that mean? Well, we better define some terms, don't you think? Make sure we're all on the same page. What is the law and the prophets? Okay? Well, when Jesus talks about the law, he's talking specifically about the law of Moses. The law of Moses begins in Exodus chapter 20. Okay? Bible trivia. Who knows what's in Exodus chapter 20? Ten commandments. Ten commandments are in Exodus chapter 20. The Ten Commandments are the first ten of the rules. They are the first ten of the covenant stipulations that God has asked His people Israel to follow. Do you know how many there are total? The number varies. Some people think 626. Some people say a different number. I'm going to go by the number that the Jews actually have agreed upon. Jews today, if you ask a Jew today, a practicing Jew, they will tell you there are 613 laws of Moses.
Moses that consist of the Law of Moses. The first ten are the Ten Commandments. So that's the Law. And then the Prophets, of course, are the 16 Prophets of the Old Testament. Now, it's not just the 16, because there's more Prophets of the Old Testament than just those 16. Think about Elijah and Elisha. They don't have their own book, but they are Prophets of the Old Testament. They are in the book of First and Second Kings, right? So, the Prophets are all of God's messengers that were encouraging his people to follow the law of Moses. So when Jesus talks about the law and the prophets, he's talking about that law of Moses and all of those people after Moses who encouraged Israel to follow those laws. So basically, the law and the prophets, Exodus chapter 20 through Malachi chapter 4. Okay? Now, why would Jesus say that he has not come to abolish the law or the prophets? Well, I think if you just stop for a moment and think about the fact that Jesus is preaching this sermon to his disciples and to a vast crowd that has also been there, I think it's very likely that there were those among the crowd that must have thought that's precisely what Jesus was going to do. Why else would he need to say this? Jesus is setting the record straight from the beginning of his ministry. And remember, the Sermon on the Mount is at the beginning of his ministry. So right away, Jesus says, basically, I, in fact, I paraphrase slightly, I know some of you might be thinking that I've come to change everything. That I've come to tell you to stop following the law of Moses. But I'm telling you, I'm not here to abolish the law of Moses. But I am here to fulfill it. Now, just imagine what that must have been like to hear that. A whole group of Jewish people who for 1,500 years as a people have been following Moses' law. Since 500 years before King David, this group of people had been following that law. Imagine Jesus come there and say, I haven't abolished the law, and everybody's like... Oh, good, because that would have been really difficult. And then for him to say, but I have come to fulfill it, then they would have been like, what does that mean? Right? Are you there? Are you on the slopes of that mountainside? But now, of course, here's where the tricky part begins. And I would like to say it's where the fun begins as well, but that depends on if your faith is Hard concrete or soft concrete? As a seventh grader, I began in my seventh grade way to try and find an answer to this question. Am I supposed to follow the laws of the Old Testament? That's a reasonable question for a seventh grader to ask, isn't it? What I found surprised me as a seventh grader because it seemed to me that every single Christian I asked gave me a little bit different answer. Moreover, the answers I received were often, in fact, almost every time, inconsistent. Now, as a 7th grader, I don't know if I was a normal 7th grader, I'm not sure there's a lot of normal about me, but as a 7th grader, I recognized the inconsistencies immediately. There wasn't like, oh, I'm just going to believe that person because they're older. There was like, wow, that person is dumber than I thought. <laughs> God made me special. He loves me very much. Okay? 
The answers I received were often inconsistent. Even the same person would tell me at the, in the same sentence two things that didn't go together when talking about whether the Old Testament laws apply to Christians. So for example, let me just give you a, a two little examples. Okay, you ready for this? The Ten Commandments. Okay? Number one, th this is my paraphrase. Okay? Put God first. Number two, no idols. Number three, don't use God's name in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Number five, honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. Ten Commandments. Right? Seems pretty good. And you know what's interesting to me? I was taught about the Ten Commandments on Sunday. The Sabbath is on Saturday. So even as a seventh grader, I was like, yeah, that's not consistent, y'all. If the Sabbath is the day that we're supposed to remember and keep holy, what are we doing here on Sunday morning? Right? Uh -huh. Even the very teaching of the Ten Commandments, there was inconsistency. Seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? See, as a seventh grader, I really liked having a list of rules. Now, I'm kind of a rule-following type of person. Sorry about that. That's who I am. Okay? God made me special. Okay? But then one day, I realized that it wasn't just the Ten Commandments that seemed to have inconsistencies, at least as the way it was taught in my own church. Think about this. Now, KFC family, if you're in my KFC, the red group in KFC family, I just said there's only one verse in Leviticus. I just said this that I want you to remember. Okay? Leviticus 19.18. So in KFC family, what my group is doing is we're going through the whole Bible. I am trying to figure out the one, two, or three verses in every book that kind of sums up the whole book. And so at the end of it, our KFC families will have a list of like the highlights of every Bible book. That's what my group is doing. Okay? So here's the, the verse I told my KFC families. Leviticus 19.18. The only one I said in Leviticus. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself I am. Now, that's, an, that, that's a very important scripture. In fact, that's so important that Jesus himself quoted that, didn't he? Love your neighbor as yourself. He quoted that as a summation of half the law. I mean, that is an important verse. Love the neighbor as yourself. That's a verse that Christians should follow. Right? Yes. That sounds good. Christians should follow that. <clears throat> Let's read the next verse. Leviticus 19, 19 says, Keep my laws. Do not mate different kinds of animals. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. <laughs> so in my seventh grade brain, there was an error code. Wait a second. I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, but the next verse says, I'm not supposed to wear clothing
something that's woven of two kinds of materials. You know what that means, don't you? It means that uh, maybe it is a sin that sends me to hell if I wear a polyester jumpsuit. <laughs> now, you might agree that that's sinful. You might agree. Okay? Some of you are old enough to have attempted that outfit. <laughs> that was bold. But according to Leviticus 19.19, that is a sin. <laughs> the kind of sin that separates you from God. Translation, going to hell for that one. Why do you say amen when there's time today? Yes, that's right. This church preaches the gospel. Is it a sin to wear that? If it, yes. Now, it's a fashion sin. Okay? It's a fashion sin. But I'm talking about the kind of sin that separates you from God. So is it a sin to wear that polyester jumpsuit? Because you would say it's a sin that separates you from God to not treat your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's inconsistent. What do we do? Please take that slide off the screen. <laughs> what are we supposed to do with the Old Testament law? Should we just pick and choose the ones we like and ignore the rest? Yes or no? I'm not sure what to say. It feels like a trick question. Right? How do we know which laws we're supposed to follow today and which ones we're not supposed to follow? Well, I'm here to tell you, many people have attempted to answer this question in the church in the last 2,000 years. And you can probably guess, there have been a wide range of answers. In fact, the range of answers goes from one extreme all the way to the other extreme. And I'm going to risk giving you a very brief history of those extremes. This is the part of the sermon that is church history. Sorry? Okay, I'm not sorry. I hate it when people say sorry when you're not. Deal with it. Is that better? I'm not sure that's good either. Okay, so long story short, I'm going to tell you the history of the extremes. Notice I'm on the floor. Okay? Starting at one end of the extreme. Okay? There was a guy in the second century. His name was Marcion. Marcion was a, he was rich, and his dad was a bishop, and he wanted to influence the church. So he really wanted to be a really good church guy. Here's the problem with Marcion. He read the Old Testament and didn't like God. He didn't like the God of the Old Testament. And so, what he decided to do was start teaching something new. Here's what he taught. The God of the Old Testament isn't the same God as the God of the New Testament. Heresy! You nailed it! Murder! Okay, let's not burn anybody. But the, the whole idea here for Marcion was that the Old Testament should be discarded. So Marcion's plan was just throw out the entire Old Testament. Now, heretic. In 144 AD, the church declared Marcion a heretic. 
So you think, maybe we've never heard from him again. But here's the problem. Here's the problem with Marcion. He had already impacted a whole bunch of people in the church, and the Marcion heresy continued for another 250 years. People in the church continued to believe. Because they read the Old Testament, and then they're like, that doesn't match what I see in Jesus. So maybe Marcion's on to something. Maybe, maybe the God of the Old Testament is like a lesser God, and the God of the New Testament is the one we really need to listen to. And so then nothing in the Old Testament applies to the Christian life. False. Okay? Could I remind you what Jesus said about the law? He didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. Alright. So that's over here. Like, that's Marcion, way over here. Let's go one step more this way. This one that I'm going to tell you about is all the rage in the church in America today. Notice it's only one step away. So here's Marcion, okay? Here's where the majority of evangelical Christians are today. It's a little doctrine called dispensationalism. You may have heard of dispensationalism. It's usually talked about uh, as an eschatological discussion. Eschatological means end times. Dispensationalism is simply the idea that there are dispensations throughout the history of humanity. So here's a dispensation. A dispensation is a specific period of time when God interacts with humanity in a very specific way. And then when there's a new dispensation, God interacts with humanity in a new, different way. So here's the dispensations. There's the dispensation before Noah. God interacted with people in that way. Then there's the dispensation between Noah and Moses. That's like Abraham. God interacted with them that way. Then there's Moses to the end of to Moses to Jesus. That's a dispensation where God interacted with the nation of Israel that way. And then after Jesus, there's a new dispensation. That's what we call the church age. And God interacts with people different in that way. And then when Jesus comes back, these people teach that there will be a new dispensation when God interacts with the nation of Israel in a new way, and the people of the Gentiles are going to go to heaven, and Jesus is going to come down and reign over the people of Israel for a thousand years. There's going to be a rapture in there. Okay? That's dispensationalism. Dispensationalism, like I said, is the way the majority of evangelical Christians in this country, right now, believe this works. Okay? I disagree. Because I think God doesn't change. Now, I could say a lot more about dispensationalism. I will say this. It's only been around since the mid-1800s. It was started by John Nelson Darby. And if you want to read more about that, you can. I want to tell you one more thing about that, though, because I may have ruffled feathers right now. You know the Left Behind book series? That's premillennial dispensationalism. That's what it is. Okay? I disagree with it. Some of you may agree with it. That's fine. This is not one of those doctrines where I'm going to say you need to be burned at the stake. Okay? So this is not a you're a heretic doctrine. This is, we can agree to disagree and still go to the same church together. That's what, that's what this is. Okay? Everybody got that? 
That's why I'm preaching on the floor today. Okay? Because there's lots of pastors. In fact, the majority of pastors just in our region would say, I'm off my rocker for even suggesting that there's another way than that. Fair enough. Now, the way that that makes sense of the Old Testament is that you understand that the period from Moses to Jesus is a way that God interacted completely different than the way he interacts with us today. You see that? God literally interacts with humanity differently between the dispensations. Number three. Marcy. Remember, the question is, how does the Old Testament relate to Christians today? Marcy, throw it all away. Dispensationalism. God was literally interacting with the Israelites different than he interacts with us today. Okay? The next one is called covenant theology. This theology is popular today in the Reformed Church. So if you have roots in the Presbyterian Church, or if you went to a Reformed Church, this is kind of what they teach. Covenant theology doesn't speak, and this is a little bit interesting, it doesn't speak of an old covenant and a new covenant. Remember, the Old Testament, the word testament means covenant, right? Covenant theology, like if you go to a Reformed church today, they won't talk about the Old Testament and they won't talk about the New Testament. They'll talk about one covenant that has been renewed in Jesus. So they won't say old and new. They'll say renewed. And the way that they get around some of this stuff now, by get around, I mean, what do you do with the, the stipulation in the Old Testament law that says you can't wear fabric of two kinds put together, right? What do you do with that? Because obviously, Presbyterians are wearing polyester. Okay, okay, right? Right. All right, so what, how do they get around that? The Presbyterian Church and the Reformed theology has come up with this idea that the Old Testament law was divided into three parts. The parts that they've identified are um, moral, ceremonial, and civic. And just to make a long story short, the, way, the reason they define them that way is because they say the ceremonial and the civic no longer apply because they've been fulfilled in Jesus. Only the moral ones are left. Okay? Now that sounds pretty good. I mean, I kind of like that idea that, oh yeah, there are some laws in the Old Testament that are morally applicable to all time, but then there's some laws that were only applicable to like the, the Jews 2,000 years ago, right? I mean, that kind of makes sense. Like, Jesus came and there's no longer sacrifices at the temple, right? Because that was a ceremonial law. And we don't stone people for adultery anymore because that was a civil law. Like, there's a civil penalty. See that? But we still love our neighbor as ourselves because that's a moral law. So they've taken the Old Testament law, the 613, and they divided it into those three categories, and then they've said, those two categories don't apply directly to Christians anymore, just the moral ones do. Sounds pretty good. Except for the fact, Jesus, nor any of the New Testament writers, nor anybody in all of Scripture, has that division. That division was created by Reformed theologians recently. Okay? That right there should be a red flag. Not that everything recent has to be garbage, but think about it. Jesus and Paul don't talk about the Old Testament law with that division. You see that? So I'm not convinced that's the way we should think about this. Besides the fact, you still got the problem with the Ten Commandments. Because the Reformed theologians would say, absolutely, the Ten Commandments are the moral law. Like they are applicable all the time to everybody. Except for number four. 
except for number four. Right? If there's a moral law, then there's a moral law. Right? Have church on Saturday. Which is precisely what the Seventh-day Adventists say. One more. Seventh-day Adventists are Reformed theologians who take the Ten Commandments all the way. So they'll say the Ten Commandments are the moral law and should be followed all the way, which means we should be having church on Saturday. Seventh day Adventists. Right? That's why they do that. And by the way, the Seventh day Adventists take other laws more literally than the Reformed theologians. So if you if you know a Seventh day Adventist, which many of you do know, a lot of them follow some of the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Like, they eat different than other Christians. If you know a Seventh-day Adventist, you'll know. They like to eat different. Now, the official doctrine of the Seventh-day Adventist church is such that they'll say that they eat different because God gave the Jews that law to eat differently because that's the healthiest way to eat, so we're actually doing it just because it's a healthier way to eat. Does that make sense? But then they follow it like it's a rule. Your uncle does that. Brother, you got an idea. So, Seventh-day Adventists, okay? Then there's groups of Christians that say it's not supposed to even be called an Old Testament. We're supposed to follow it all. All 613 are laws that apply directly to Christians today. Because we are simply an extension of, the, of what Israel was. The church now is the new Israel. And we are supposed to follow them all. Now, if you go way over here, you'll land at some groups of so-called Christians. Like, and this is really unfortunate. The Worldwide Church of God is the name of this. Um, it is a cult. They do not believe in the Trinity. But part of their theology is that we have to follow all of the Old Testament laws as Christians. Okay? Do you see the range? It goes all the way from throw the Old Testament away to follow the Old Testament all the way. So what do we do? Oh boy, I spent way too much time on that. What do we do? Because I want to leave you with something to do. Right? Okay, so here we go. Look at Exodus 29, 22. Take from this ram the fat, the fat tail, the fat around the inner parts, the covering of the liver, both kidneys with the fat on them, and the right thigh. This is the ram for the ordination. Woo, that's a fun one. Okay, what does Jesus mean that he did not abolish that, but he fulfilled it? Well, I want to just give you a suggestion here. Something to think about. The ram being talked about there. The, the tail on that particular ram is 15 pounds. Almost all of its fat. Okay? It is, is a specific type of ram that is only found in Israel and the surrounding countries. Have you been to Israel? Right? I haven't. Some of you maybe have. Do you think God is telling us we have to go find that ram? And we have to do that. No. In fact, 
It's actually, I would say, verging on the point of absurdity that we would think as believers in the church today of Jesus, of Jesus that we would have to go find that ram. I mean, are we supposed to literally travel to Israel and get that ram and cut its tail off? No. We're not. So how, what do we do with this? Well, guess, guess some, I want to tell you something interesting. Of the 613 stipulations, if you just go write them out and you categorize them, you know what's really interesting? 95% of them are the kind of laws that you can only follow if you literally live in Israel. Like, I'm not just talking about Israel today. Like, I am talking about Israel today, like, geographically. But I'm talking about, like, Israel, the nation of Israel, 2,000-some years ago. Like, 95% of the 613 laws, you would literally have to be living in Israel in 2,500 2,000 to 2,500 years ago. Because that ram doesn't exist here. So what do we do? Does it mean that the Old Testament law is just obsolete? No. I want to read to you one more time, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What are we to do? I want to remind you, our God is perfect and unchanging. He wrote the Old Testament law and the laws for his people Israel. Those laws reveal God's intent. Remember 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in all righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. When Paul wrote that to Timothy, there was no New Testament. There was only the Old. What we call the Old. The scripture he's referring to is what we call the Old Testament in that passage. So, I think there's a way to do this. Here it is. What does it mean that Jesus fulfilled but did not abolish? Four things. And I got these from a paper I would love to share with you if you want to look at them. Something I've been thinking about for a long time. Number one, you want to write these down? It's a good time. Remind yourself that the Old Testament law is not my law. And that we are not legally bound by it. That it is one of the laws God issued to ancient Israel as part of his covenant with them. Old covenant, new covenant in Jesus. Okay? We are not legally obliged to avoid polyester. Okay? We are not legally obliged to hunt down that ram with the fat tail. Fair? But we've got to be consistent. We are not, and this is where it gets tricky, legally obliged 
to follow any of the 613. Now, hold on. Okay? Number two. Number two. Determine the original meaning, significance, and purpose of that law. In other words, what was the point? Why did God issue it? What were God's motives in issuing it? Okay, so in any one of those 613 laws, the first thing you say is, I am not legally bound by that law as a civilian citizen of the new covenant. That's the old covenant, right? Number two, but I still want to know God, and I want to understand God better, so I need to figure out what is the significance or original meaning of that law that God gave to Israel. In other words, there's truth there. God ordained truth there. Okay? And now number three. Determine the theological significance of the law. In other words, what does the law reveal about God's ways? And then number four. Determine the practical implications of the theological insights gained from this law for your own New Testament circumstances. Determine the practical implications. Okay? You follow those four steps, with all 613, you should come to a conclusion that is helpful for you living your actual life as a New Testament Christian. Example. Look at Exodus 22-25. Okay? If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a moneylender. Charge him no interest. Okay. So if, if, you're, if you're over here in the spectrum, and you are a Christian banker, you might start to get nervous right now. Okay? Because as a Christian banker... I don't see a lot of Christian bankers today loaning money without an interest rate. Especially today. Right? So, if you're a Christian banker and you're falling on this side of the theological spectrum, you look at that and you go, yikes. Right? Okay, stop. First thing. Ready? This law is not my law. I am not legally obliged to follow this law because I am a New Testament Kingdom of God citizen. I am not an Old Testament citizen of ancient Israel. Okay? But don't stop there. Number two, right? What's the point of this law? So remember, number two is determining the original meaning, the significance or purpose of that law. Okay, this isn't hard to do. Why would God... Give this law to the nation of Israel. Okay, this reveals God's purpose and God's heart. And God doesn't change, so that purpose and that heart is still the same today. Right? So what can we learn from this? If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a moneylender, charge him no interest. God cares about poor folks. Right? And the way that we interact with poor folks 
needs to reflect God's heart as revealed in this stipulation of the law. Now, I didn't say that that means you can't charge interest, because we're not under legally what that law is. But we are under the idea that this is God's heart on display. Do you see that? So, we are to be compassionate to folks that are poor. Number three, what are the theological insights of that law? Again, God is concerned for the poor. If God is concerned for the poor, here's the theological part. So ought we to be. Do you see that? That's the theological part. Now, we get to the one, everybody skips the first three and just goes to four. Right? The practical implications. As a Christian living in the New Covenant, what are the practical implications of Exodus 22-25? The practical implications. If you're a Christian banker and someone poor comes to you and you know they need help, help them! This is not tricky. Now, how you help them is not specified because you're not under this covenant. But you are under the covenant of love, which means you find a way to help that person. Now, if you're a Christian banker, that might mean you go out on a limb and give them a loan. I doubt your supervisor is going to let you give them a loan at 0%. Right? Banks don't do that. But you can, you know, as a Christian banker, there's leeway. You can help this person or, if that's not it, get them food. Send them to the food shelf here. Figure out a way to help them in need. Right? Ask them how you can be a tangible help to them. You know what you can't do? And I'm using can't. I don't want to get legalistic here. Here's what you can't do. Ignore them. Act like you don't see them. Do you see that? You see, Jesus came to fulfill this law. The fulfilling of this law means it's so much more than just what you do. It exposes the heart of who you are and the way you interact with that person who's poor. Jesus has fulfilled this law by helping you understand why God gave this law in the first place. And you can do that with every single one of the 613 laws of the Old Testament. You apply the fact that Jesus says... Put love in to everything that's in the 613. Put love in. Well, what do I do about polyester? Go through the process. Number one, right? Not legally binding on me. Number two, determine the original meaning. Now, that's what we skip. Why would God tell people not to wear polyester? Should I tell you the answer or should I just leave it hanging? Because God was very concerned that the people were holy, set apart, pure. The nations around them were doing these things. They were mating animals together. They were mixing seeds. They were putting on clothing that allowed for idol worship. The meaning behind that law is don't mix God with other stuff and don't even give the appearance that that's what's happening. Now you can apply that to your life. Because now you understand the theological practical implication the theological implication is that God refuses to be second best. 
He wants you to be set apart for him. Which means you shouldn't look like the rest of the world. You should look different. See that? How do you practically apply it? I don't know. Look different. <laughs> I mean, don't look like the rest of the world in the way you live. There, I've done two out of 613. Can you handle the rest? Because there's some that people like to use as battering rams. Well, you better not get a tattoo. Straight to hell. Really? Really? Why is that one in the law? I'll leave that one for you. You can do this, people. Because we have Jesus. We have Jesus. <coughs> Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I'm going to end by reading it again, and then we're done. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The entire rest of chapter 5 is Jesus giving examples of how he has fulfilled the law. And that's where we go next week. Thank you, God, for your word. Help us understand how you fulfill the law. 